Good afternoon and welcome to Managing and Mitigating Security Risk from Third-Party Vendors, a Health System CIO Media Inc. production sponsored by ProTennis. Just a little housekeeping before we get started. My name is Anthony Guerra. I'm the Editor-in-Chief of Health System CIO, and I will be your moderator today. We're looking forward to your participation. You can send in your questions or comments in the Q&A box at any time, and we'll take them later in the program. Just so you see how we're going to spend our time today, first we're going to go about 40 minutes with our main panel discussion featuring Marty Arvin, VP and Chief Compliance and Privacy Officer with Erlanger Health System, Jim Brady, VP, Cybersecurity and Risk Management and CISO with Fairview Health Services, Teresa Meadows, SVP and CIO with Chuck Cook Children's Healthcare System, and Nick Culbertson, co-founder and CEO with ProTennis. Then we will have our audience Q&A. So we're going to jump right in. Lots of good stuff to talk about today. Uh, Teresa, let's start with you. Can you give us an overview of your organization and your role? Sure. Hi, everybody. Uh, Cook Children's is a uh, large integrated pediatric delivery system in downtown Fort Worth. Um, I always say some people get us confused with Cook in Chicago. We're way south of Chicago. <laughs> um, we're actually, it's, it's, this is fun to say, we're actually now two hospitals as of January uh, 9th. We opened up our, our second facility in the Prosper area, so super excited about that. Um, we have a large physician network where we employ about 500 physicians in our physician network, all specialties, primary care, urgent care, um, a health plan, home health, uh, two joint ventures. So we're on a very big growth mode um, in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, uh, but all pediatrics. So we're super excited. And thanks, Anthony, for having me. Very good, Teresa. Thank you. Jim? Hi, everybody. Uh, Jim Brady. I'm the VP and CISO at Fairview Health Services. Uh, Fairview is located in the Twin Cities in Minneapolis uh, in St. Paul, Minnesota. Uh, we have about 10 hospitals, uh, about 50 clinics, a uh, very large specialty pharmacy uh, uh, unit. And uh, we are very closely aligned uh, through the M Health Fairview brand with the University of Minnesota Med School uh, and the University of Minnesota Physician Group. Uh, so as an academic health system, so we focus a lot on uh, tertiary and quaternary care. Uh, we're about $7 billion in revenue. Uh, and we're currently uh, in discussions with Sanford Health uh, for a, a potential merger. So that's kind of a bit hit the news recently. So that would, uh, I think if we combine the two organizations, we would be the 11th largest health system in the country. So uh, wow. Happy to be here and uh, you know, excited to discuss this very important topic of uh, third-party risk management. Exciting times, Jim. Very good. Marty. Well, good afternoon, everyone, or good morning for those of you who, who may be in Central or the West Coast time. Uh, I work for Erlinger Health System in Chattanooga, Tennessee. We're a multi-hospital system. We also have a physician practice group of about 450 providers between physicians and nurse practitioners. We have a standalone ED and we have multiple joint ventures associated with home health, uh, CyberKnife, and a couple of others. Uh, very challenging times for us. Uh, you know, I feel like I'm the odd duck on the panel because folks have security backgrounds and 
you know, I like to say to people, I don't speak geek, but I do an okay job of translating it. <laughs> very good, Marty. You uh, you are very welcome here, and I'm sure you're going to add a lot to the conversation. Nick? Good day, everyone. I'm Nick Culbertson, CEO and one of the co-founders of Pertennis. Uh, we use AI and automation to help uh, improve compliance analytics for hospital systems. Uh, and I'll just say it out loud. We are the third party uh, in the room. So I'm going to represent uh, um, my company as as a, a partner to hospital systems and talk today about how we do everything we can to partner well with our, our customers. Uh, unfortunately, I can't speak for every third party out there, but I'm excited to uh, hear from the panel exactly how we can do better and how, how um, health systems can do better to protect risk for their for their patients. Excellent, Nick. Thank you. All right, let's jump right in. Uh, Teresa, we're going to start with you. Um, let's set the stage and, and sort of, it's kind of wide open. We'll see where you take it. How would you describe the challenge of managing third-party risk? And, you know, as fourth-party risk, something privacy and security professionals need to start dealing with. And we know where that goes to fifth and sixth parties. And, <laughs> and that's lots of fun. Go ahead, yeah. Teresa. Yeah, I mean, I think it's probably one of the biggest challenges um, organizations face because there's not a healthcare organization that does not do business with third parties. Um, and pretty much what you see is a lot of the third parties that we interact with also have access to uh, critical patient information or EPHI. Um, and so how do we begin to uh, work through those third party relationships? And a lot of people think most of the third party relationships are just in IT and with IT software vendors and hardware vendors, but there are many third-party relationships where we might outsource a portion of our business. So think about uh, coding, for example, we might have a third party that does our coding for us, or we might have outsource our billing office, or we, or we might have, you know, um, traveling nurses that we hire through a third party. So third-party risk is actually a fairly significant enterprise risk issue. It's less about IT. And so I love the makeup of this panel because it's really the three-legged stool. You need your cyber review, you need your compliance review, and then IT review. Um, and it really takes all three of those things to have a successful program. And so I think, you know, this is something that probably I spend the most time on right now just because it is a very large task. And it's something that we really haven't been doing probably well um, until probably the last, you know, less than five years. Most organizations have not been doing third party risk uh, probably until, you know, right before COVID, if not just a little bit before. So it's a fairly new process for most organizations if you're if you're doing some sort of risk management of the third party. So it's it's a wonderful topic. Um, I'll let uh, Marty or Jim add on. All right. Very good, Jim. Yeah, uh, those are great comments, Teresa. Yeah, I was just thinking that there's um, so many vendors that we're working with. I think I read a stat that about 60% of breaches now are coming from third parties. So there's quite a bit of exposure that we have. Um, so one of the challenges, and I think you alluded to it, is it's so big now. And unless you've had a breach where all of a sudden everybody lists the call to arms and it gets a lot of attention, you know, we simply don't have the staff to, you know, assess the, you know, do a security and privacy risk of all of our vendors. Um, and then we've got a bunch of them already in our environment. Um, so we need some type of a platform. And so I know there's several 
uh, platform services out there that offer third-party risk management uh, you know, services so that you can kind of, the surveys will get filled out one time by, by the vendor and then um, everybody that uh, participates in that platform can leverage that. Um, you know, it, but it's, uh, you know, I know one of, our, uh, in addition, one of our challenges is that we've just got vendors that don't want to, you know, conform uh, to, you know, how they remote access in. They want to kind of use their their method. Um, you know, they may uh, say, well, this is a black box or, you know, in other words, this system, we can't put any any antivirus on it or whatever. So, you, you know, we're not able to secure it. Uh, so I think there's just, you know, quite a bit of, uh, you know, uh, effort that's needed in the contracting phase to really talk about the importance of, uh, of, of security so that both sides can agree on what's, you know, going to be amicable uh, because, you know, definitely a lot of risk. Very good, Jim. Thank you. Uh, Marty, your thoughts? Yeah, I think, you know, I agree with what Teresa and, and Jim have said that the fourth party risk, I think, is another area that more and more people are starting to get into and looking at things like we all have business associate agreements with the third party vendor that say you must get any downstream party to agree to substantially the same terms. And I don't know if any of you've ever looked at the agreements that your third parties are getting with those fourth and fifth downstream uh, vendors, but it very often does not match the terms that you have in your agreement with them. And so it, it's thinking through where are all the patients your data is going and where can it be you know, leaking out? And do you have some comfort that that third party is actually doing what they're supposed to be doing to help protect your data as it does get pushed out and further downstream? So. Yeah, that's a piece. I won't say we've got our handles on the third-party risk piece of it, but these are the kinds of things that cause me heartburn because <laughs> if you've got a handle on the third party, if you don't have a good handle on who they have as a fourth party, then you still have substantial risk. Very good. Nick, your thoughts? Uh, I appreciate all the comments that everyone said. Jim already threw out the stat of how much uh, business associates and third parties are responsible for data breaches compared to their covered entities. Um, I think this is a problem that's only going to get worse just by the nature of digitization of medical records and the uh, the sharing of information, which is going to make patient care better. It's really important that we do that, but it's creating a lot of exposure. And it's why you see in Congress a lot of uh, discussion and debate on whether the rules should be changed. I think it's really important that uh, health systems are keeping a close eye on new regulations that might be coming down in the near future. Uh, especially when you have uh, large incidents like Meta, uh, you know, abusing the access that they have uh, for their own purposes. So it, it's a really concerning area. And I think it's something that as an industry, we're all trying to get a grasp on and, and do better. Um, and it just takes a lot of work. All right. Very good, Nick. Thank you. Okay. Next question, Jim, we're going to start with you. Describe some features of your third-party risk program Sort of that you like. You're like, we got this piece down. We're doing this part well. I think this is a nice policy or procedure we've got. Yeah, definitely. Okay, so I mentioned the the platform, third uh, third party risk management platform. So I think that probably was the thing that really made a difference in our third party um, initiative. Uh, so we are using a platform, and the and I explained it just briefly a few moments ago. But what it does is uh, it, it gives us the ability to uh, not burden the vendors with having to do annual risk assessments where they have to go to us individually, where they just go one time. So 
the the platform we're using. I know there's several out there. I think there's about twenty thousand vendors that you know do business with healthcare. So so they have uh, you know they have their questionnaires all filled out. Um, so we can catch people. Definitely, you know, we're now catching them for all new procurements. Um, anything that's a significant change uh, in the in the contract renewals, et cetera, where that's a gate that we're catching, uh, where we um, will have those surveys looked at. Um, we can look at the surveys that they filled out in general, and then we can ask questions. So it really just speeds speeds up the process. So you no longer need an army of people to you know tackle the third party risk uh, vendors. I know we have about I think around 1,500 uh, vendors on the IT side that we do business with. So it's, you know, there's no way we we would have the time to be able to interact with those folks. Um, so, and I know it makes, it should make it a little bit easier. I know, Nick, maybe you can add to that if it, if it helps, you know, if you didn't have to go to 600 different customers and, you know, complete all those risk assessments. So I think that's helpful. And also uh, we're in a, um, we're in a phase where we're, um, you know, definitely we're getting the new procurements, but then we're also going back uh, based on risk and then based on um, um, uh, you know when they uh, when they made a contract with us uh, we're we're adding those in and getting them into the system so that we can um, have a good idea of you know where are our high risk you know we're PHI PCI PII vendors uh, so we can focus on them so we're kind of tracking uh, it's going to take us a year another year or so to get them all in the system but that's been super helpful. Very good, Marty. Um, I have to say for us, I think we're still getting this solidified. So things that, and I'm still getting an understanding having having been here just over a year. So I, I think there are probably features that do work well that I'm not yet familiar with. Um, I, I think looking through this and and offloading it, as Jim said, I, I think is one of the better ways to do it because. It, it is very time consuming and there are ways you can coordinate this. And, you know, I'd, I'd be interested in Nick's comments and, and Teresa, whether you do this as well, whether um, where you have and say, give us your risk assessment that was done by an independent third party. And a lot of vendors have liked that in my past life because they get that assessment and, and you know, they can give it to multiple clients instead of me asking you to complete the questionnaire. If you can give me something that was done by a reputable third party, then I can rely on that and not have to complete that for, you know, however many clients you might have as a third party vendor. Teresa? Yeah, a couple things to add. Um, we're definitely doing something similar to what Jim is doing around the crowdsourcing because you're never going to have enough resources to do risk assessments on everything that we have to risk assess. So that's that's been super helpful to have that database where we can actually go and kind of use the crowdsource data that's already been tapped into. But the other thing that I think that we're doing well is really around education um, and educating purchasers about why we have to do the risk assessment before we can complete the contractual process. Uh, and we've actually built sort of a, a checklist that says, here's the things that we're gonna be concerned about go ahead and provide those to whoever you're having conversations with. So if I'm having one of my IT managers uh, do some initial fact gathering around a new product someone wants to buy, we go ahead and provide them our standard about how we want, what, what our expectations are around risk and risk assessments and 
um, early in the process. So sometimes doing that, what allows us to do is see what, what kind of partner that, that particular vendor may be. Because if we get a lot of pushback about their security posture, then that leads to other questions that we like to ask. And so we try to build that in um, early in the process so we already know kind of what we're dealing with up front. And then the other thing that we've done is we've partnered very closely with legal for agreements that aren't really IT related. So if, if I'm going to outsource a department function, um, we've been working with them on making sure that some of these same questions are being asked from a privacy and compliance perspective. And we've kind of shared that template out so that they can share it with others um, as they're going through the selection process. I think there's just a ton of education around risk. Um, most, the average buyer doesn't appreciate risky behavior, especially like around medical devices and other things that are less uh, concrete, um, you, you know, when you're doing your evaluation. So that having some of that ongoing education is extremely helpful. Very good. Nick, your thoughts? So I, I think Pretendus is a little unique in this space in that we are a compliance analytics company. We live, breathe, privacy, security, and compliance every day. And, and so I really push our team to make sure we're always going above and beyond when it comes to um, partnering with our customers to make sure that we're doing everything we possibly can to, to minimize risk. But uh, Teresa pointed this out earlier, not every vendor is in the compliance space. And when you have uh, billing, uh, coding, or uh, uh, nursing staffing, uh, they may not be thinking about all of their requirements. And so um, we've come across uh, a lot of um, uh, other third-party risk assessment vendors like Jim is talking about. And it, in many ways, they do streamline the process, but there's also 20,000 of them that are out there in the market. And so, you know, we we have built into our infrastructure to make sure that brute force is the only way you can really handle it. It's, you can't automate it if there's that many vendors and they're all, all asking just slightly different questionnaires or asking similar questions slightly different ways. Um, and so, you know, we're able to do that. I, I, we really like what Marty was talking about when we can just provide our risk assessment because we invest a lot of effort into doing our own um, SOC audits or risk assessment audits. And, you know, we try to follow standard guidelines like NIST so that we can just provide that documentation and, and check a lot of boxes. Um, but, you know, it's really important that if, if we are doing some additional survey, we make sure we go through that effort um, uh, to, to, to be able to meet any of our, our customers' needs. So, Honestly, I would say uh, it's really nice when health systems can build a partnership with their vendors uh, and really understand what they're doing. I think that's necessary when you have high risk um, uh, work that's being done with vendors because you can't build a partnership with every third party and having some kind of automated process or some kind of trusted process uh, is really important. All right. Very good. Um, next question. Do you stratify your vendors into tiers? that differentiate them by criticality so they can receive different levels of attention. So it seems like there's a couple of ways to, to break this down. Obviously there's a, a PHI vendors dealing with PHI and vendors not dealing with PHI. Is that sort of the first step in, in figuring out how to, how to put these uh, third party vendors into buckets so that they can each receive different levels of scrutiny? Um, Marty, I don't know if this is your area, if you play in this area, but do you have thoughts on this kind of approach? 
Well, again, I haven't gotten knee deep in what we do here at Erlinger, but I've definitely dealt with this in the past. And, you know, I think you, you've got to be cautious about just looking at PHI because there's a lot of very significant sensitive data that could be beyond that. I think you, you know, you stratify it associated with risk, or at least that's how I would always recommend it. And there might be things you'd be willing to live with in a contract where the vendor touches very little PHI or PII, but you still need to have some sort of something in the agreement versus somebody who hosts your entire EHR. I mean, if, if they're hosting your entire EHR, obviously, if they had a data compromise and weren't properly securing it, you're going to have a, a lot more to deal with. And so I think one thing is to make sure you're looking at it, whatever data they have, because again, there's there's risk associated with sensitive data across the board. You probably have a little more regulatory exposure if you talk about PHI from the covered entity perspective. But I do think that it's helpful to stratify. I don't think you want to necessarily ignore all those folks that have you know very little interaction with it. But you have to develop some process where you're scrutinizing them on, on some sort of a routine basis. Maybe you do that vendor that has lots of data every year uh, versus the vendor that has minimal or limited data might be every two or three years. But I don't think you want to just necessarily say we don't have to do anything with them uh, simply because they don't have a ton of PHI. The other thing I'd really, really emphasize is know what they have and scrutinize those documents uh, a lot of times you'll find vendors and you're like, why do you need all this data for what you're doing for us? And sometimes they haven't thought about it. And other times they've said, well, we want to do these other things with the data that really aren't tied to what we're doing for you. But, you know, if, if we're willing to give it to them, they're certainly going to be willing to take it. So uh, understanding and recognizing, you know, what data you're giving them, do you meet minimum necessary if it's PHI? And all of those things are going to be important to think through that risk level. Very good. Teresa? Yeah, the only thing I would add to that, I agree 100% with what Marty said, is, you know, originally when we started um, risk assessing systems, it was really because of HIPAA and theft of data and, you know, some of the requirements we have under those laws. Um, now, part of the risk assessment process is their technical infrastructure um, because if it is not secure and safe the way they architect a product or the way that product connects to our network, uh, that could be a higher risk uh, depending on you know the severity of, of their network architecture or their application architecture. Because um, then you do put PHI or even you know you know sensitive critical information about an organization at risk, and you open the door for other things like ransomware, etc. So. When we do our risk assessments, we not only look at the volume of PHI and how we stratify, you know, how do we stratify that, but also are there other risk factors that we need to mitigate for? So, for example, if it's a medical device and it's the only medical device that does a certain clinical function, we're going to need to we're going to need to architect that and put that on a high watch list with some of our other tools that we have around. Uh, medical device monitoring or something like that. So I think our risk assessment process has gotten more complex. Um, it was easier when we were just worried about theft of PHI or loss of PHI, but now it's actually more complex because we're worried about other things that may or may not impact PHI. And again, those other things, Teresa? A little yeah, bit on that? 
ransomware um, yeah. is a big one. So if I have a, a tool that's not architected correctly and it's a web-based tool and that can allow access into my environment, um, which then causes ransomware to spread throughout my organization, um, that's a pretty high risk in my opinion. If they can't provide us either a standard audit or some other you know, feedback on how their security architecture is done. So we're looking at we're looking at things like that as well that could be risk of connecting to you because you're not you're not you don't have as good hy- as hygiene as you need to around cyber, and you're right. seeing that more and more um, with with cloud-based vendors who are developing smaller applications. Um, they don't have all the infrastructure they need to be secure, uh, which could open the door for other problems. So we really look at some of those types of things. Very good, Jim. Yeah, I was going to piggyback on Teresa's comment about the about the ransomware. Yeah, so I think we've looked at the tiering, uh, you know, PHI, PII, PCI from a data breach perspective. But the bigger worry and concern is, you know, do, do these um, third party uh, vendors and uh, partners do they have do they have access to our to our environment? And then can they come in, move laterally? If they're compromised, maybe they don't even know they're compromised. You know, we mentioned fourth party risk earlier. That's a huge concern. So just looking at that um, and assessing that, um, you know, we've seen Kaseya, I think that was last year sometime, um, where, you know, that affected so many people. There's SolarWinds, there's, you know, ex- uh, Microsoft Exchange, you know, had a, if you're still running an outdated exchange uh, or an older uh, system that had a big vulnerability. Um, yeah, and there, you know, so there, the list goes on and on about, you know, bad actors entering into the environment. And so um, I think we're prepared for, you know, maybe several hours or a day or two of downtime, but we're not, gen- in general, I don't think health systems are ready to go for a three to four week downtime. Of course, we don't want that because that's going to be really difficult to, you know, care for patients and revenues, revenue generation is going to be difficult. So, so I think that's a big concern. So how do how do we uh, you know, make sure that we're looking and stratifying vendors based on what is their you know risk? So one of the one of the things we're doing with our uh, risk manager third party risk management program is we do assign a um, a internal inherent risk rating uh, and then a residual risk rating, uh, and that's actually on the, the, that third party risk management platform. And then the second thing we're doing is we're spending a lot of time trying to quantify the risk of, you know, how much of our revenue, if we had a, a one in 100 event, uh, which is meaning, you know, the odds of getting it are, you know, 1%. But if you do get hit with that two to three week downtime, you know, how much revenue is exposed uh, based on other health systems getting dinged uh, uh, and based on the number of controls that you've got. Uh, and then looking to quantify, you know, how much um, how much needs to be offset with cyber insurance and potentially more projects on, on the security and privacy side. Uh, and I think this, I don't know that we've applied that methodology though to third party risk uh, management. So it's something I, I know that I'm gonna be spending more time on in 2023. Uh, you know, so how do we, how do I, how can I quantify to the senior management, to the board on, you know, X amount of millions of dollars is at risk, uh, you know, third party wise. Um, so that's something I think that we got some work cut out for us. Hey, Anthony, can I add one more comment? Please, so, please. You know, what really has been driving this is if you remember, recall last year when Kronos 
was was breached. Mm-hmm. Um, that really put a strain on health systems who were hosting their their data. Of course, it wasn't PHI, but they went without payroll services. And so to Jim's point, that's one of the things we're actively working on is that third party risk and how do we quantify it? So if my payroll system is down for four weeks and I pay people possibly incorrectly because I'm doing it manually, that's a higher risk. That company is a higher risk. And we would love for that company to share more information about their security posture. Um, and that's just one good example. We had this happen with you know, our patient satisfaction vendors. We had it happen with our foundation software vendors. So this, like in our mind, is a really big flag that if we're going to put all our eggs in a you know, hosting basket, we need more information about their security posture than we would if we were going to host it ourselves. And so that's, mm-hmm. so we're spending a lot of time on that. So I think you're going to see that part of the evaluation uh, become more and more critical the more we ho- we allow to be hosted outside of our four walls, um, which everybody is. So we've got to figure out and we need cooperation from our partners to share the critical data that we need to feel comfortable that we're, we're making the right decision. Well, Jim, Jim mentioned that sometimes the cooperation isn't quite there. So Jim, <laughs> what, 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 listen, it's, it, this, it, this is going to vary by vendor because yeah. there's always a power dynamic relationship between a customer and a vendor and the bigger the health system, the more power it has, the bigger the vendor, the more power it has. So you pick any two organizations and that will define the nature of that relationship and the relative power of each entity, Jim. So I'm guessing when you have not, you're not getting cooperation, it has something to do with that power dynamic. The, the big, big vendors are, you know, maybe not going to be running around trying to get you all the answers you need. Yeah, if I can just comment on that. So I know that uh, Nick and Proten is, is an, uh, they're amazing, you know, uh, very cooperative and, um, you know, uh, it's awesome. Um, but there are, you know, lar- larger vendors uh, that are not used to getting any requirements from their, cl- you know, their customers or clients, and they do things a certain way and, and they want to do it their way. And they, you know, as I mentioned, they might black box, you know, their, their networks or their systems, et cetera, you know, you, um, and then you you initially try to get um, some flexibility, uh, and you're talking to people that are not, uh, you know, maybe they're at the lower level. So I think, you know, what's one one of the things that we've been doing is during the contracting phase, uh, really partnering with the vendor, talking about the importance of secure uh, security and privacy, and making sure that they understand, you know, what are the implications on both, and making you know, make sure they know what our what our requirements and requests are. And I think that as we've done that, we've seen a lot of vendors, you know, actually uh, working with us. So, you know, they're definitely not all bad. I just think that the some of the large ones, particularly maybe in the medical device space where they have certain, you know, FDA regulations and uh, rules that they kind of follow uh, and they're used to just sort of deploying. And then, the, you know, you as a customer, you pretty much have to get what you're, you know, what you're given. Those are a little bit more challenging, but I think that the majority of vendors I'm finding are, you know, wanting to come to the table at the at this, particularly at the contracting phase, and 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 are open to a discussion, and will do whatever is needed um, on their end to, you know, to try to have the customer be secure and satisfied. 
So Nick, as as someone who will do whatever is needed for their customers, of course, <laughs> uh, what are your thoughts on this question? Um, no pressure, Nick. No, pressure. no, no pressure. Tell us <laughs> yeah. how great you are, Nick. Well, I I, th- I think I really appreciate the the stratification of uh, vendors and the power mm-hmm. dynamics. Uh, you know, we're a small company, and uh, we we really lean into the direct partnership relationship. We invest a lot into our customer success team to make sure there's a lot of transparency in what we're doing because we think that that gets us a long way. But um, it, it is interesting to think about the power dynamics. If you need a vendor and they're the only one in this space you don't have a lot of options. And so I like uh, what Jim was saying about measuring that against revenue or calculating that risk. I mean, it's everything is just a risk calculation. I can say, you know, why we are a third-party vendor, we also work with vendors and and we try to take a very opposite approach of hospital systems, which is we try to minimize what kind of vendors we're working because we don't want to create more fourth-party vendors for our customers. So we try to minimize that as much as possible. Um, so not the best answer to the question since we're the third party, but that's what we think. No, it's an interesting dynamic. And I've, I've spoken to a lot of CISOs lately who are getting involved in the application rationalization process in order to minimize that vendor universe and ecosystem. So it's like, whoa, whoa, before we bring on another one, let's see if we've got what you need in-house just to why keep increasing that risk if we don't have to. So that is a very interesting dynamic. Um, all right, next question. Teresa, we're going to start with you. Putting in a new vendor onboarding process may be manageable, maybe not, but at least you got a shot at it, right? Here's our new process. Everyone who comes in and wants a vendor assessment is going to go through this new assessment with these new standards. But, you know, as Jim mentioned, we got 1,500 already here who are in-house. So, Okay, the next one that comes in, we got that, but who wants to look at these 1,500? So that seems to me a big issue, and then it's the continual, uh, okay, and we'll get to this a little later, but okay, how often are we going to review those 1,500 platforms help, which Jim mentioned a good platform can help. But, Teresa, what are your thoughts on, um, you know, sort of getting your arms around this and not having a panic attack when you start thinking about tackling this problem? (laughs) Right. Yeah, I'm Dilbert right now. I'm screaming and running, running from the room. <laughs> um, you know, I, this is definitely just a process problem that people need to figure out how to address. I mean, technically, we should be assessing all of our systems that have EPHI annually. Um, but the other approach that we've taken is definitely either on contract renewal. So most of our contracts are three or five years. So when a, when a contract comes up for renewal, that's our time to assess. Uh, that particular product, or if we have the opportunity during an upgrade um, or um, any kind of enhancement to a system, we take that opportunity to reassess products. So we tried to build in, you know, processes that said, okay, we're not Jim, we have 400, which is still a lot. How do we do everything and do it timely? And so that's kind of been our process is as things come up for renewal, upgrades, changes, we do that risk assessment at that point if it hasn't had one in the last three years. And so that's we've kind of got things on a three year cycle if they don't have PHI and then the annual cycle uh, for all the EPHI systems. And so do we get them all done? Probably not. But at least we're trying to tackle as many as we can in any given year. That's why the crowdsourcing and having a tool is so important, because I have two people who do risk assessments. And they could not do it 
without that help from the third party. There'd just be no way to keep up with the volume. So that's kind of our approach to kind of work through that that issue. Very good, Jim. Yeah, Teresa pretty much said it all. She took everything I was going to say and encapsulated really good. I, I um, yeah, so I, I can also mention that uh, you know time goes by pretty quickly um, in in healthcare. So I know Teresa mentioned three to five year contracts, but you know that time can go by really fast. And so, um, and, and if you have a lot to get through, then you know I think as long as you're making progress and uh, you're chipping away um, at that at that list, then you could get trued up, and then the the, the uh, you know any cha changes that have gone on in the environment or upgrades et cetera then those things can help accelerate it so um, you we can you can get to the finish line quickly and I, I think the important thing is to have a process to be uh, making headway uh, and be you know narrowing that that subset of uh, vendor uh, vendor systems that haven't been looked at. And uh, and then that's just it's really what risk management's all about. It's not eliminating it tomorrow to zero, but it's you know reducing the risk to some acceptable level. So we can only do what we can do, and you know based on our resources. So I think that's important to you know keep that in mind. Marty, your thoughts? Well, I agree with everything that Teresa and Jim have said, and and the one thing that I would add to this is a little bit outside the scope of your question, but. It's an area that has caused me some angst is um, doing that follow-up once you've uh, once that relationship with the vendor has ceased and you've terminated it and also monitoring how you're getting your data back. And if you're not, if you agree it's not feasible to get it back, and they say, well, we need to keep it for another three years because of our regulatory obligations. Is anybody monitoring three years from now whether that data has actually been destroyed? Uh, I've not come across any good process for that. So if you, anybody on the panel has it, please share with me. Well, that is an excellent, excellent point, Marty, that I had not thought much about. Uh, does anyone, uh, we'll use that as your ask a co-panelist question, perhaps. Does anyone have a thought on that? Has anyone thought? I mean, it's like we're trying to get our arms around the, the front end and Marty's already got her mind on the back end, which makes a lot of sense. Nick, I'm going to throw you under the bus. What's What's... <laughs> that's a, that's a serious. Just to be clear, I don't have my arms around it. That's a question yeah. I'm posing. <laughs> no, it, but it, it it's just a, a place to start thinking. Nick, any thoughts on that? Well, uh, two thoughts. So one, um, we deal with data retention policies that are adjustable based on our customers' needs, and so we have it automated into our platform uh, so that if it's uh, if there is a retention period, we make sure that there's a uh, as new data is created, new data is being pulled off um, from the platform as well. Um, but also to um, uh, just reinforce Teresa and Jim's comments, um, we have customers who follow up survey survey like every time we renew a contract. We have some do it like every three or so years. We have some that send quick surveys every year and say, hey, no changes, right? Like you're still good. I will say as a vendor, especially as a growing company, I feel like our company is a completely different company every six months. We're constantly making changes, not just to our technology, pushing out releases every two weeks, um, but also, you know, bringing on new team members, changing internal workflows and processes. Uh, now, I, I hope I'm not giving people heartburn because I like to think we're building in the right direction and building in security and compliance into our infrastructures and actually improving over time. We maintain a repository for our sales, marketing, security, and compliance teams 
of like over, I think it's over a thousand different elements to help answer these kind of questionnaires and stay on top of it. Um, but without going back and confirming with, with vendors, and we, we've had some uh, customers that we do it, we do a security questionnaire when we first sign up, and then we kind of don't hear from them. And I, I think I, I, I would encourage shell systems to think about what's the regularity so that if you are switching, bringing this back to the question, if you're rolling out a new program, there should be some kind of ongoing like uh, rechecking or re-verifying throughout that partnership to to ultimately get everyone over to that that new standard and building in questions like, you know, have you gotten rid of the data that you are supposed to get rid of? Well, that's a good point, Nick. And I was going to ask you about that, which is, you know, your advice to people that are on the line, mostly individuals from health systems, about how they should be viewing and managing that third-party risk. So it sounds like uh, one of the things you're saying is, yeah, you got to be checking in periodically because companies change. We change. We think we change the right way and we build in security and compliance into our growth, but not maybe not everybody is. So you can't just, it can't be one and done. And it, maybe even that, I don't know, that once a year, hey, has anything changed? I mean, you're you're relying a lot on on the honesty and goodwill of that vendor. I mean, there's a lot of trust that goes into this whole thing working with these questionnaires. Am I right? It, it ultimately comes down to trust, which is why I think it's a good idea to stratify your vendors, depending on what level of risk you have. Some that you should probably get a little bit more in the weeds and and get a little bit closer to their operations. Um, but but I do. I think it's important to check in and really understand uh, what it, understand what changes have made, made. Especially because we always talk about M and A and hospital systems, but there's a lot of M and A activity in vendors as well. And so when a vendor gets scooped up by a larger uh, enterprise, one of the things that uh, private equity typically does is they say, well, we're going to streamline operations by rolling up IT and security and compliance onto one umbrella. And then suddenly you have a team that's now responsible for a brand new product or whole new uh, uh, market. And they may not be as familiar with all the nuances. And so that, you know, being able to check in after an acquisition or, you know, after a, a merger, I think is really important. Hey, Anthony, can I ask yes, one please. thing to Marty's question? Please. You know, I think this is a lesson everybody's learning over time. And so when we had, um, when our patient satisfaction vendor had had ransomware, that's when we, the aha light went on that we needed to actually see how much data they had. And they had 10 years worth of data, which was, you know, I forget how many, 3 million unique patients or something like that. And so that's when we started scrutinizing you know, how much data should they have? How much should they keep? Are we great on the follow-up? No, but I think we're getting better, especially with our, to Nick's point, the higher risk systems that we know have a lot of PHI and that we've agreed contractually that they'll only keep it for X amount of time. We're getting better at keeping track of who those are and then doing the follow-up questions, but we didn't really get the clue phone until we had to investigate something um, and figure out what the what the actual problem was. And they were holding the data because they might do research. Might, right. Might do might. research at some yeah. point, right? And so now we look for those things contractually where we never looked for them before. And we also think about how much data we're going to be giving them so we can put that, at least the, the ability to do it, which is very difficult. 
So even the ability to audit or ask questions in these in contractual relationships, very hard to get. And there's a lot of negotiation that goes back and forth about the right to audit, the right to ask questions, that kind of stuff. And so it's real important that you start thinking about that on the front end, like how much data is going to be there? Okay, if the contract's for three years, that's three million patients. That's X amount of money. Um, You know, if you took four hundred dollars per patient per whatever, you could start getting the idea. But we we recently have gone back and doing what you suggested, which is, did you get rid of it when we asked you to? Mm. Because <laughs> you contractually committed to get rid of it. So we need to make sure that you do it and sign an attestation. So we have an attestation form that we actually have them sign that says, yes, we eliminated your data. Um, and so I think those are ways to kind of get around some of the, the issues that you mentioned before. Jim, I just want to touch on a, a point made earlier. Uh, we talked about different ways of stratifying risk. Uh, one could be PHI, non-PHI, though Marty said you certainly, um, you know, it goes deeper than that. You can't just do it that way and be done with it. Uh, Teresa touched on another way of stratifying a relationship, um, which is have we transferred data to them, meaning, okay, they've got data, whether it be P or HI or not, versus are there open pipes between the organizations where a ransomware over the over there event can get into our laterally move into our network is that another way to stratify these relationships where we've transferred data but there are no open pipes to get in versus there are open pipes is that make sense yeah and actually i i, I totally agree with it and i think i mentioned it that access um access to systems in the environment is is a, is a critical you know uh, area, do you know? Do we have visibility? Uh, that's why in our, in our health system we push for a standardized approach, like a standardized uh, way to connect over a web browser to you know access the systems. <clears throat> so we have visibility. It's going through our firewall, so we you know we can kind of detect what's going on. But if you have these VPN B two B connections, or you have some you know everybody wants to use their own special you know way to connect, and we don't have visibility, so we can't track it. So in the event that something does happen uh, on the vendor side, and trust me, it has happened, you know, on multiple occasions to many health systems and where, you know, we've had a number of our vendors got got hit with Kaseya, et cetera. <clears throat> um, and so we immediately had to take action. We just severed that VPN connection that they would use, um, you know, to be able to gain access uh, to the systems. So at least we could, you know, quarantine while they went ahead and uh, addressed it. So I think uh, having visibility in a standardized way and just making sure that's in there contractually is important. And then, uh, you know, for in, for our vendor partners to realize that if we have to manage hundreds of vendors, then, you know, I know that they have their favorite way to do it and their favorite tool and know they can't support the system without, you know, they have to use this particular product, uh, you know. Um, so I, I think there's a little bit of give and take there, but it's, you know, it's important that we can manage all of our extensions of our you know of our essentially they're extending our it team and by being you know the, by being you know connected in that service agreement so uh, we we have to find ways to have uh visibility and control uh so we do we do spend some time w- with that uh talking about that at the, at the contractual level marty have you looked at that or dealt a lot with that the, the contractual requirements for notification of breaches and things like that 
<laughs> <laughs> yes, um, this is uh, anybody who's heard me speak on it knows this is one of my soapbox issues because I, I remind people that when you look at the definition of a breach in the HIPAA regulations, if you call it a breach, that means somebody has already evaluated low probability of compromise. I prefer not, no offense, Nick, but I prefer not to leave that exclusively to a vendor. I've had experiences, not with Nick's company to be very clear, but with vendors that have said, oh, we have this compromise, we evaluated it. It's not a breach that, you know, that fits one <laughs> of the exceptions or there's a low probability of compromise. And I've said, okay, tell me more. And I've either disagreed that it fit the exception or I've said, no, I, I don't agree with you that it's low probability of compromise. So I prefer to have an agreement that says they notify us of any data compromise involving our information and that they have to allow us to review the assessment they did because the obligation to notify remains with the covered entity. It does not transfer the, to the business associate. So my organization has the obligation to notify if it doesn't meet the criteria and have a low probability of compromise and in fact is a breach. So I prefer to say, you know, we have to have a process. You have to be willing to share with me. You may do the assessment, but I want to hear more about what you did, what you found, how you determined there was low probability of compromise. Because if I don't agree with you, then I may make a choice and say, we're going to notify because I don't think the way you evaluated it, it's not the way we would have evaluated it. And again, there's a risk tolerance perspective there. But if you, you know, if you say that I'm going to score something, say, for example, and if it scores five or below, I'm going to say that's not a breach. If it scores uh, six to nine, I'm going to look at it further. And if it scores 10 or more, then we're just going to say that's a breach. Well, that's something I did in a prior organization. Uh, but I worked with one client that said their, their scoring system was, you know, total points of 27. Anything 18 or less, they considered low probability of compromise. And I'm like, I'm not sure how you can say it meets a risk score that's two thirds of the points it can get. And that's a low probability of compromise. So my point in saying that is if, you know, if you have a vendor who's using that kind of process, I would not be comfortable calling that low probability of compromise. So definitely put the language in there. The regs require that they notify you of a breach within without undue delay, but no more than 60 days. I think many of us put a shorter time frame in there than the full 60 days. Um, even though, you know, once you notify me, now I've got my 60-day clock running if it's determined that notification is required to the patient or to OCR. Uh, but we often put shorter time frames in there and push back. And I, I literally just dealt with a vendor at the end of last week who said, you have no business knowing how we analyzed whether it was a breach or not. And it's like, excuse me, but yeah, I think we do. <laughs> mm -hmm. Anybody else want to comment on the the, the concept of, of uh, notification, contractual notification? If the pipes are open and they have a ransomware event, the minutes count, right? Yeah, actually, we, we require for diagnose uh for telling us about the problem uh, uh no diagnosing the problem was 15 minutes and uh and we have a resolution time of two hours if there's a security breach um so and we you know can come through email or what have you but we do have some language in the contract for that Teresa yeah we also build in that language but to Marty's point that it's always the language they want to fight over 
Hmm. <laughs> Literally, they want to fight over. And so we usually end up deferring to legal, what they're legally obligated to do. And then we try to make it more stringent. Um, and sometimes we're lucky and sometimes we're not. So I think this is an ongoing thing that if if the governments were going to look at things, that would be something that as part of, you know, revision to high tech or one of those uh rulings where they do have more obligation to report and it's not it's more detail we need that we need the detail and so just them telling us they had something happen is not the same as telling us exactly what happened so we know how to handle it from our perspective and so um, that could be a place where we could improve our business associate relationships and their relationships with other third parties um, that doesn't exist today. Nick, it's a, it's an interesting discussion. Um, the health systems are obviously looking at it uh, from their point of view. A vendor may, you know, is looking at it from their point of view, may have hundreds of customers dealing with a security incident when you have hundreds of customers. Um, so they all need to know, but, but you're dealing with the incident too. And you need, you've got 15 minutes to deal with it and two hours to tell Jim. So it could be a lot of pressure there, a pressure-filled situation. But what are, what are your thoughts there in terms of what's reasonable to expect? What should health systems be requiring of their third parties? Well, I, I can say uh, my answer is going to be a little bit nuanced. Like, I think it is important for hospital systems to reach out and ask for the details and really understand what's going on. Uh, from our perspective, we do uh, we do get into situations where we may push back a little bit, and especially when the requests are blanket and general. And the reason for that is we want to avoid situations where, uh, you know, all of our customers can request anything at any time, and it just creates a lot of uh, complexity to our operations and where they're, you know, the requests that we may not be able to keep up with. Um, what we do is we, we try to fall back on, well, let's really understand what we're trying to solve for what, you know, what is going to give the confidence of that we are doing the right thing and that we are working together collaborative on this. And I think this, just to bring up a, another point that I think is important when working with vendors really comes down to who you're talking to at the company. Uh, and so we may pull in, you know, our privacy officer or our CISO to the like, let's have a conversation about what is the right information we should be sharing and how we should be working at this together um, to get to best place that's that makes sense for us operationally, but also addresses the concerns and make sure that we're all on the same page here. Um, so, you know, we uh, devil's in the details uh, when it gets to this for for, for sure. Well, we are just about out of time. I want to apologize for people that sent in questions that I did not get to. I didn't get to my ask a co-panelist good fun time. Uh, but you know, we we had a lot to cover here. What we didn't cover, what's next in in my thought process in this is the uh, internal business continuity planning that has to go into place in a health system, working with the users and saying, this application, if and when it becomes unavailable, do you know what you're going to do? Right. And that's all got to be workshopped and they have to make sure that they can deal with it. So that's kind of the next step in this third party risk, as far as I see it. But that's about all we had time for today regarding continuing education. You could use the final slide in this deck. You'll get an email when the on demand recording of this event is ready for viewing. If you want to sponsor an event with us, you can reach out to Nancy Wilcox from our team and you can go to our website to register for upcoming panels. With that, I want to thank this tremendous panel. Marty Arvin, Jim Brady, Teresa Meadows, and Nick Culbertson. I want to thank Pro Tennis 
for sponsoring and I want to thank every all our attendees for coming. And with that, everybody have a wonderful day. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks everyone. Thank you.